our series, Faith and Gear, in this book. We are now starting chapter 4 this morning. So you can turn with me to James chapter 4. I'm turning there myself. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll put the, the words and the Scripture references up on the screen. You can, you can check there for references. Just to say, we don't always say this, but we do prefer, if you've got a Bible, bring your own Bible. Like There is something... There's something holy, I would say, about having your own Bible in front of you during the service, a Bible you're familiar with, a Bible that you love, and that as we're reading and looking at the passage, you've got the text in front of you. So we want to do this to serve you. If you don't have one, no shame for not having one, but it's a great thing to have your own as well. Now, before we look to the text, begin the message, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, Lord, we want to hear from Your words this morning. Lord, we want to be a people who reflect the nature of the Gospel that has saved us. We want to be a people who reflect the prayer Jesus prayed in John 17, that we would be united, that there would be peace, that there would be harmony, that we would be able to be a city set on a hill shining forth the proud, glorious light of the Gospel, and that the way we live our lives in relationship to one another would bear witness to everything we believe about You and about Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, in order to do that, we need to hold up the mirror of Your Word to our hearts and to our lives. We need to be changed. We need to see ourselves correctly in light of Your Word. And we need the grace that You provide through Your Word that we might be changed and transformed into the image of Your Son to better reflect what You have called us to be. Lord, by being members of this church, being members of Your universal body, You call us Your bride. Lord, we want to be the pure, spotless bride You have called us to be. We want to live together in unity and in peace. And so, Lord, I ask that You would do that. You would reveal that to us this morning in Your Word. Grant us the grace to hear and the grace to obey. We pray this in Your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, I was one of those... I don't even know what you really call it. If I'm a millennial, I'm kind of like on the verge of like being a millennial maybe. Sometimes it's kind of hard to figure out which generation you typically belong to. But I do remember a little bit about the 80s, but the 90s was really sort of the time when I grew up. And so the 90s are really when a lot of my formative memories are, which means neon colors were a cool thing, and it's actually kind of weird to see like neon shoes coming back into style. I guess it was kind of different for folks when bell-bottoms way back in the day were coming back in if you grew up in the 70s. Well, for me, it's weird to see those shoes start to be stylish again. You know, neon pink was really cool for a while, and it hasn't been cool, and now all of a sudden it is. Well, in the 90s, you think of that of that decade, and there, there's several things that stand out as really sort of anchor moments in the history of our country. And early on, in the beginning of that decade, there was a tragic event that got captured on video camera, and it was the beating of a man named Rodney King. If you grew up at that time, you remember seeing it. It was this image of these five Los Angeles police officers beating Rodney King. It got released to the public. They were acquitted. The long and the short of it was, once, he, once those officers were acquitted, massive riots broke out in the city of L.A. So in 1992, the beginning of the decade, 
were marked by these huge race riots that just went all over the city of Los Angeles. People of different ethnicities fighting each other, taking to the streets, vandalizing property. And there's all sorts of chaos that broke out. And it was, you know, there's a feeding frenzy of the media as they covered it. And one of the indelible memories of all of that was Rodney King, the man who was beaten, and you remember what happened, right? Standing up in front of the cameras in the midst of all this chaos and violence and asking the question, why can't we all just get along, right? It's sort of the quote that came from those riots. Why can't we all just get along? Well, that's a question that James has an answer for. We're going to see that this morning. Now, we're starting chapter 4, and that can lead us into the false assumption that chapter 4 is a totally new thought, right? Remember, anytime you're reading the Bible, the chapter divisions and the verse divisions, those aren't inspired. Those are things that were added to the text at a later date. Now, they're really helpful. It allows me to stand up here this morning and say, turn to James chapter 4, and you know exactly where to go in James, right? But those aren't inspired. And so sometimes, unfortunately, a chapter break falls really in the midst of a continuous theme and thought. And that's the case this morning. What James has been saying in chapter 3 is tied very carefully and closely to what he'll now talk about today and this morning. And so if we remember, in James 3.18, he left us with this. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And he talked about the difference between wisdom from above marked by humility and purity, right? And wisdom from below, wisdom that is earthly, marked by selfish ambition and envy and discord. Well, that theme is carried forward this morning. What does it look like when a church, the churches James is writing to, become infected by infighting, by sins of the tongue and arrogance and general discord? What happens when there isn't peace? Well, James is going to give us the solution this morning. He's going to give us a battle plan for fighting division. He's going to give us a battle plan for what it looks like to combat divisiveness within a community. And he's also going to answer that question of Rodney King. Why can't we all just get along? So, with that in mind, let's turn our attention now to the text. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning 
and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. The Word of the Lord. May He write its truth upon our hearts. Well, that is James's answer to the question why we can't get along. It's James's battle plan for what it looks like in the midst of community to combat and fight division. And I think as we look at it, we can see three distinct things that emerge from the text. James points out to us, like any good general, right, in constructing a battle plan, you don't just think of what your offensive strategy is. You also have to assess, where are we weak? Where are we vulnerable? Well, he shows us two vulnerabilities to division that exist within the body. And then he shows us the answer to those vulnerabilities. So those are the things we're going to look at this morning. The first thing, the first vulnerability we see is James shows us the danger of our desires. In James 4.1, he asks the question, What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? What causes divisiveness and factions within a body? Now, we don't actually get a sense of the nature of the language James is using in the English. Quarrels, quarrels can almost sound like a squabble, right, between a couple of little kids. But the language he uses is actually far more truculent. It, it, it's sharp and it's edged. And the word quarrel, it actually literally means warring. The, the quarrelsome person is a warlike person. They're belligerent. They stir up hostility. It's actually where you get the word polemic from. James doesn't say anything about the topics being argued, though, does he? He just says that there's division. There's warring. There's fighting. He doesn't say what the disputes are about. Now, I think the reason he does that is because the issue isn't theological. James isn't concerned with bringing himself into the midst pastorally of a theological dispute where there's some sort of doctrine at cost. It's not that big a deal. These are more trivial things that tragically have turned a community on edge. So he's concerned with the spiritual health of these people. He wants to get to the bottom of the contempt that is eating away at these churches. So, what causes these wars? What causes these controversies and battles within the body? Is Jack just a jerk? Is Mary just sort of mean-spirited? Is Charlie just sort of that cantankerous old guy that lives down the street? Maybe it's them, right? Maybe it's him. Maybe it's her. Maybe it's that whole group. That's the reason. That's not what James says. That's not what James zeroes in on. He says the quarrels, the wars, the fights and the friction... Those things don't come from other people. Those things come from the war going on inside. From the war within. In other words, James says, it's not them, it's you. When quarrels and fights break out, don't look to the other person to assign blame to them. Look to yourself to discover what's going on in your own heart. He says this in answer to his question. What causes these things in verse 1? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 
These passions James is talking about aren't neutral. They present desires run amok, desires that have turned idolatrous. The word is actually where we get the word hedonism from, if you get a sense of the passions he's talking about. You want to know why you can't get along? Because your passions are stirred up and warring within you. It's not just that you find things enjoyable. It's that your treasures, your longings, your dreams, your goals, those things are set against themselves. So, it's not just a push and pull of desires. It's more severe than that. It's a war of desires. You put it this way, and he's using militaristic language. What goes on when a community is fighting is that individual people within that community are facing a battle for supremacy within their own hearts. Listen to how Peter puts it. 1 Peter 2.11 Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Sounds really familiar, doesn't it? The passions of your flesh are waging war. You want to know why you argue? Because your desires have become sinful cravings. The issue isn't what your neighbor did or didn't do. It's not what your spouse said or didn't say. It's not the fact that you have desires in the first place. It's the fact that the desires you do have now rule you. It's not that we want things. It's that we want things and we can't control the depth of our longing. So those desires become lusts. So when you don't get what you want, you're not content. When I don't get what I desire, I begin to covet. And here's what happens. When those cravings get combined with relationships, and those relationships don't meet the things that I desire in the cravings of my flesh, it stirs up envy and selfish ambition. See the connection with chapter 3. And that gives rise to strife and disorder. James 1.14. That's what he says. Remember this all the way back to the beginning of the series? But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, James writes. Now, do you hear the connection James makes both in chapter 1 and now again in chapter 4? He makes a connection between our motives and the fruit that comes. The reason you can't stand to be around someone isn't solely them. There's also something going on in you. You crave something, James says. You have a desire that's not being met. And when that desire isn't met, you respond wrongly. When our jealousy isn't satisfied, he says, that flame spreads. It spreads into dissension and fighting. Now, James says something really sobering about the destructive power of these desires. These dangerous desires, these, these desires unloosed and kind of run amok. When they're left to run their course, they don't stop 
at a war of words. They escalate into a literal war of violence and murder. Now, James loves alluding to Jesus, right? The two things he loves alluding to are the Old Testament, especially wisdom literature, and to the teachings of Jesus. And so, when you first read that, there can be a sense, oh, he's probably talking about Sermon on the Mount, right? Where Jesus talks about, if you're angry against someone, you've already murdered them in, their, in your heart, right? I think that lets us off the hook too easily. I don't think that's all James is saying. I think he wants us to take the warning exactly as he's written it. He wants us to think of Simeon and his brothers and what they did to Joseph. You're talking about a shiny coat and a little brother with obnoxious dreams. But it stirs up desires within the other brothers to the extent they plan to murder him. And even though they stop just short of that, they're willing to sell him into slavery, into a life of bondage. They're willing to go back to their father and tell him and deceive him that their brother was killed and ripped apart by wild animals. Don't think your desires can go all the way to that end? I think he wants us to think about Cain. Envy running so deep, he does murder. That's the ultimate expression of desires that are left to metastasize all the way into idolatrous ruling cravings. That's the place your envy could go. That's the place your craving could end up. The solution the solution to combating these community-destroying lusts and ambitions, he says, initially, is to pray, right? You need to pray about this. But here's the problem. Even here, your desires thwart your ability to pray to God appropriately. Our wrong desires and our frustrated desires leave us turning to God with wrong motives. He says this, You do not have because you do not ask. Implication, you should pray. Verse 3, You ask and you don't receive. Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We pray for God to act. We ask God to intervene. We implore God to take up our cause. But our hearts haven't changed. Right? Our desires have now turned to trying to manipulate God in prayer. Now, if you're a parent, you know what this looks like, right? You've experienced this as a parent. Every mom and dad knows you see conflict arise with your kids. You know, if it's little kids, maybe they're fighting over a toy. Older kids, maybe that's a dispute over the car keys and who's going to get to drive the car that night. Or maybe they're fighting over an iPad or who's going to control the remote control and decide what TV program is watched. You can, you can think of whatever it is. Bottom line, these disputes reach a boiling point. They can't be settled between the kids, so they come to mom and dad, right? Sally did this! Well, John did this! And yelling back and forth. They're not asking you to intervene and bring peace and tranquility back to the household. They're asking you to side with them. They're asking you to come in and quash their opponent. Come in and solve for me the craving that I have. I want the toy, so mommy, make sure I get the toy. 
Make sure my brother doesn't have it. I want to drive the car. I want to hang out with my friends. I don't care that they have to go to the library. I want it. So I come to you to solve it. Mom and dad become the leverage for my desires. You see how that works? Well, adults aren't any different. Our prayers often often devolve into asking God those same sorts of things. We're just a little more sneaky about the way we do it. But it's a far cry from how Jesus taught us to pray, isn't it? That God's name would be hallowed. Would be glorified. That God's kingdom would be established. Instead, because of our desires, James says, our prayers get warped into these thinly veiled expressions of dressed up selfishness. I had an experience in a previous church, peripherally part of a pastoral team counseling a couple. Married couple, they've been married a long time. And from the outside, they look like they had it all together. But inside their home, it was toxic. Tragically, sadly, ultimately, this couple ended up getting a divorce. And it went all the way to that point. And the more you kind of unearthed in it initially, you could see the husband had issues. He had, he had things he wasn't doing that he was called to do, things he shouldn't have been doing that he was doing. And you explored it and we were unraveling it, trying to bring counsel. And we realized he's got a lot of stuff he needs to work on. But as we started digging into what was happening and trying to bring care and counsel to this couple, to this married man and woman, we realized this wife had deep-seated idolatrous cravings that were also partly to blame. She wanted to control. She wanted to dominate. She wanted to rule the household. She wanted her husband kowtowed in a corner doing exactly what she wanted. But she was incapable of seeing the way that her desires and her cravings and her lusts were also adding to all of the discord and insanity that was happening in the marriage. The husband was doing and believing wrong things. He was not in any way, shape, or form off the hook. But she was incapable of seeing the way she was adding to the division. The subtle ways, in some ways the harder ways, to see how she was bringing divisiveness. Because she was unable to see the way her desires controlled her, there's an inability to bring help, to bring care. And ultimately, the marriage ended. Four or five children, five children at home. The power of desires, they're left untethered. Our desires don't just threaten to divide the body, though. They don't just threaten to divide families and marriages. The second place we're vulnerable, James says, is that these desires threaten to divide our own hearts. He warns us of what it means to have a divided heart. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The second vulnerability he's talking about is this sense that our hearts can be divided by these desires. And ultimately, this vulnerability is the fact that our hearts are vulnerable to worldliness. Our hearts are vulnerable to being led astray. Now, when you hear that question, just think with me for this a second. What comes to mind when you hear the word worldly? When you hear this term worldliness? What are the vices that sort of jump to the forefront of your mind? Got that kind of list formulating in your head? Worldliness is, is a term that encompasses all sorts of things. It could be, it could be your clothes. It could be the entertainment you indulge in. It could be the issues you support. It could be how you handle your money. It could be your attitude towards marriage, your attitude towards children, towards leisure, towards worship, towards community and fellowship. It could be your attitude towards God's Word. Worldliness can be expressed in all of those things. Worldliness is this sense that we become too cozy with the ways and values and philosophies of man. It warps what we promote. It warps what we find offensive. It changes what we reject. It alters what we find beautiful. Think of that list you have in your head. You see those things and how they fit into those categories? James says the world's way leads to destruction. Well, here's a moment of conviction. Think of the list you've got. If you live in bitter jealousy, in strife with members of God's body, or members of your family, and you refuse to call it sin, or you refuse to deal with it, James is saying in this text that you are as worldly as the physical adulterer. You're as worldly as the drunkard. You're as worldly as the murderer. That's his point. In case you think I'm exaggerating, listen to how James describes people battling just this. He says in verse 4, you adulterous people. That's severe language. I mean, in this letter, you know how he's referred to them up to this point? My brothers. My beloved brothers. My people. Not anymore. He changes direction. He, he likens them, actually it's the feminine form, to the adulteress. The imagery I think he's using, I have no doubt he's using, is to remind us. We're called, because of our union with Christ, to represent a marriage. And we, as God's people, are the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. James's point is that when our hearts are divided, when our passions wander, we're acting like an unfaithful wife. An unfaithful, that in some ways can almost seem too clean, right? We're acting like a wife who has gone to the bed of another man. That's what happens. And then he makes another extreme statement. He says, if we're even friends with the world, you are enemies with God. If you have friendship with the world, you are at enmity with God. You are against God. And you read that and you're so 
friends? I mean, take a chill pill here, James. I mean, is it really that extreme that you've got to go to that extent? We're just trying to be relevant. Only a fool, James says, thinks you can have an undivided heart. It's like a man that thinks it's pretty harmless, actually, to flirt with a woman who's not my wife. It's no big deal. Just Nothing's happening. James says our friendly flirtations with the world rip at the covenant bonds of our fellowship with God. To understand this point, you need to grasp what he means by friends. You know, we kind of throw that word around casually, right? You tell a story about a friend from sometime in your past, and maybe it's like a real friend, but sometimes it's just this person who's sort of a casual acquaintance. I had this friend once, and you tell the story, and you haven't talked to the person in eight years. We just kind of throw the word around. Friend is a casual thing. It's made even more casual in the last decade by Facebook. You get thousands of friends on Facebook, most of whom you haven't seen face-to-face in years. That's not the way friend is used in the Greco-Roman world. It's this Hellenistic sense. When you talk about friendship, you call somebody a friend, there is a gravity to it. There's a weight to it. It means you have a mutual sharing of all things. You call somebody a friend, it means that person, my friend, is someone I am united to physically and spiritually. It's the nature of that world in James' day and age. So you see why worldliness and godliness have no part of each other. And it's important to realize there's nothing here. This, this is helpful. This is convicting. There's nothing here that suggests any of these people are overtly or publicly denying the gospel, right? None of them are saying, I'm walking away from Jesus. It seems like they would be saying, we're a part of the community. We're a part of God's people. And James looks at what they say and how they live. And he gives a sobering assessment. Their habit of worldliness, simply by discriminating against people, by sinning with their tongues, by acting on selfishness and envy, by letting their desires drive them into quarreling, it's tantamount to having a sexual affair with the world. That's his point. Having this sexual affair with the world all the while coming home and telling God, I had a great day today, darling. I'm committed to you as ever. James raises the stakes. Because he wants us to see what these minor sins really are. They reveal divided hearts. And divided hearts really aren't all that divided. No one's a little bit of a traitor and a little bit of a patriot. Right? That's not the way it works. You can only live in allegiance to one kingdom. And James's point is that God tolerates no rivals. Look at verse 5. It's a heavy text and James wants it to be heavy. Or do you suppose, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. In other words, James is saying, do you think that's not true? Do you think God's lying when He says He yearns jealously over the fact that He has taken His Spirit and united it to you? 
Because a divided heart is like a cheating spouse. It breaks the union of a marriage covenant. In a similar way, God, James says, is jealous to remain faithful because He's united Himself with us. The Spirit dwells in us. And that Spirit is jealous. Jealous, burning with a holy desire. A sanctified envy. Not for a portion of our hearts, but for all of our hearts. He wants you to live for one kingdom. For His kingdom. He demands total allegiance because He's made us His possession. And so He's jealous when we flirt with the enemy's kingdom. We see this in Matthew 6, 19-34. It's too big to read the entire passage. But you'll recognize it's in the Sermon on the Mount, so it's very familiar to most people. In there, Jesus makes a point. And it's not until the end that you realize everything He's talking about falls into two categories. Two competing kingdoms. He's unpacking the way we either serve our own worldly selfish kingdom or the way we live for God's kingdom. The way that we warp our allegiance into a kingdom of self. And so he gives all these examples of the way our desires and our cravings and our lusts represent a heart that's set on the other kingdom. Remember how he says it? He talks about how we store up and hoard treasures. What's he say about that? Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. He talks about how the eye is the lamp of the body. Everything the eye gazes upon, it takes in. And so if the eye flirts with the world, if it gazes upon darkness, it takes in darkness. It fills the soul with evil. And then he says in a verse that really closely alludes to what James is saying here, which probably means James has the whole passage in mind, he says the heart that chooses to serve money as its master hates the other master. You can't serve two masters. You can't love two kingdoms. In the end, the heart divided is consumed by its worldliness and it's left in this spiral of anxiety and unbelief. And then the entire passage turns in verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The point Jesus is making is that there are two kingdoms at war within our hearts, expressing themselves in our desires. The kingdom of self, which leads to this adulterous love of the world, and then divisions within the body of Christ, and the kingdom of God, which sets its heart upon righteousness and sows peace and brings harmony to community. And James picks up the good news of Jesus' sermon. But seek first is a clarion call by Jesus that James applies. It's a call to live rightly. Specifically, it's a call to turn, to repent. And that's the final piece of James's strategy. You know how you combat discord? You recognize your desires can be dangerous. You recognize that when your desires are left untethered, they divide your heart. And when you recognize those two things, you turn to God with deep repentance. 
he gives this warning about the jealousy of God, right? Remember how the author of Hebrews describes God? A consuming fire. That sense of God and His jealousy is meant to stop us. It's meant to make us pause. God does not accept or trifle with people who mess with worldliness. But He doesn't leave us there. He gives us verse 6. But He, God, gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God's grace is completely able to meet the requirements of His jealousy. He demands absolute loyalty. And the good news is, as Augustine says, God gives what He demands. In His mercy, He extends grace that empowers repentance, that renews faithfulness. This is James, right? So grace is never cheap. Grace is always meant to move to action, always requires a response. Faith that believes in this grace has to be put in gear. And it's put in gear, James says, when we respond with humility. God opposes the proud. And pride is evident when our hearts belong to another kingdom. But He promises grace, unmerited favor, the power to live in obedience to the One who's humble enough to admit, I need to return. I need to repent. I need to be forgiven. In other words, the humble person recognizes I need to submit. If our fighting is owing to hearts that have been enticed by another kingdom, the solution, James says, to counteract this is to submit again to God's kingdom. Now, that word submit, it means you place yourself under authority. The humble person places themselves under God's authority. Desires the grace to live under the Lordship of Christ. And here's what he says. Here's the promise he gives with that. If you do that, if that happens, this is what it means. It means you're given power to resist the devil. To resist his rule and his kingdom. And it means the devil will actually flee from you. Here's sort of the irony of the passage, right? If you're reading this, if you pick up this passage, you even think of the illustration I used earlier, talking about the married couple who had these desires that just ran amok and overwhelmed their marriage. You look at that and you think the tragedy as you're hearing that story is this man and woman who were meant to be one flesh who made a vow before God that they would stand together are now divided and broken. You hear that and you think of the kids and the chaos of the relationships the turmoil of these children that, that used to know one home with a mother and father and now go back and forth between weekends and, and weekdays. Well, the tragic irony is that as much as those other relationships are destroyed and broken, as much as churches get torn apart, as much as marriages get pushed to that brink, as much as you get families that can't even do holidays together, James wants to draw our eyes to the real horror. Those things are terrible. But 
much worse is the way that this worldliness, this divided heart, these unchecked desires break our fellowship with God. It changes our ability to commune with God. It doesn't change the way God views us, but it changes our sense of His closeness. The only response to that, James says, the only solution is to repent. And if you read this passage, this is the gravest language of repentance you find in the entire New Testament. I mean, the words and the ways that James describes the nature of repenting and turning are, are remarkable. He says in verse 8, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. He's writing to churches. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Literally, remember we talked about this earlier? It means double soul. You divided heart people. Verse 9, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The point he's saying with the laughter and the joy is people that flirt with worldliness they trifle with it, right? It's sort of a, a funny thing. It's this picture of the fool. Think of the court jester who's always laughing and everything's a joke. James says, dispel of your laughter. Dispel of your silliness. Realize the gravity of your situation and return to your God. I love how the prophet Joel puts it. You can hear the, the similarities. He says in 2.12, Yet even now declares Yahweh the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Mourn over your sin. Weep over the distance that's been created between you and God because you flirted with worldliness. And you listen to all that and you think, man, how do I do that? What does it look like to do what He's calling us to do there? Well, the reality is left to ourselves. We don't have the power to overcome and resist the seduction of the world. That's James's whole point. The humble person receives grace because the humble person recognizes they need grace. They avail themselves of grace. God calls on us to return and He gives us the grace to repent. Through His will, God's own Spirit dwells within us. And His Spirit stirs up in us a sense that we have to turn and repent and return to God. He says early in the letter, right? That God calls us out by the Word of truth. That, that Word of truth, according to His will, creates life in us. That it empowers us to continue in the way that He's called us to live. He says, humble yourselves before God's Lordship. Submit yourself. Submit your will to His Word. Turn your desires back to His glory. And God will pour out the grace. God will pour out everything you need to do what He has called you to. Maybe the best summary is given by Hosea. And it makes sense. You remember the story of Hosea? He's a prophet, right? One of the minor prophets. And God calls Hosea to marry Gomer, a prostitute, an unfaithful woman. Because he wants the people of Israel to see 
before their eyes in the agony of their prophet's life what it's like for God when His people are unfaithful. When His people don't live in the unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17. But hear the good news of Hosea 12.6. By the help of your God, Hosea says, return. You need to repent. And God helps you, empowers you, gives you the strength to do it. God's grace is stunning. In the face of our promiscuousness, of our hearts turning to another lover, God's inexhaustible capacity to forgive us and to extend restoration comes into its sharpest relief. You see that. You think of a marriage where where one of the individuals has committed adultery and the other spouse finds it in their heart to extend forgiveness. It's a, it's a remarkable display of what it means to be loving and committed to vows, right? Even in the midst of unfaithfulness. That's what we see in God here. His grace empowers the very repentance that He requires of us. And He says this beautiful thing, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Have in mind the picture of the prodigal son and his father. The sense of that story is the father is waiting, is longing for the son to turn. And when the son turns, when the son returns home, the father is waiting with open arms, excited, longing to return the son to his embrace. Listen, listen to the promise God gives Solomon. In 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn, repent from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. You know what's interesting about that? What do you think the context is? Some sort of big sin on the part of Israel, right? God gives that promise in the midst of the consecration of Solomon's temple. He gives that promise at one of the high points of the history of Israel. They've created a house for God to live in. They've collected an offering from all the land. They've brought in the cedars of Lebanon and gold. They've spent an entire week sacrificing animals. It says 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep to purify this temple because in this temple, God is going to dwell. This is the place where they can come and they can worship Him. This is the place where His presence will be. This is where they can come and pray to Him. This is where they can come and have their sins forgiven. This is one of the coolest parts of the entire Old Testament. God is dwelling with His people. It's a preview that He's going to restore everything. That at the very end, God will live with His people. And you see it as He comes into the temple. And here, at this amazing point, God comes to Solomon and He says, and when you're unfaithful, when this people who are right now worshiping Me with their lips when they humble themselves and pray and seek My face and turn from their sin, because it's coming, I will hear. I will forgive. I will heal. When James calls us to humble ourselves, to draw near to God, to cleanse our hands and to purify our hearts, 
doesn't have a million cows in view. He wants us to come in humility and repentance and hope through the blood of Jesus. God draws near, James promises. God hears our prayers. God forgives divided hearts. Why? Because the fragrance of Jesus rising from the cross is pleasing to His nose. He smells the sacrifice of His Son for sin. He says, yes, this is appropriate. This is sufficient. This is the reason why I can extend grace to unfaithful people. And that means we can have restored fellowship. It means if we humble ourselves before the altar of the cross, God promises to exalt you. Draw near to me, child. You have disobeyed. Draw near to me. The punishment has already been set on your brother Jesus. Come back to my embrace. And that's not all it means. It means we get restored fellowship with one another. By forsaking the kingdom of self, by returning to the kingdom of God, you're not just reconciled to the Father. We have the grace to reconcile with each other. You think back to that illustration earlier. The power of our desires to go all the way towards murder? Well, Simeon and his brothers don't kill Joseph, do they? All they do is sell him off into slavery. You got siblings? Imagine your siblings selling you into slavery. And they sell you off to Egypt in a day and age when that means you're never going to see home again. They're selling you off to Bangladesh. And there's no return ticket. For all they know, you're going to be abused and whipped and die in poverty. There's envy on one hand, right? What's the reason they sell him? They long to have what he has. He has the father's affection. He gets the beautiful coat from his dad. So you get envy here, exactly what James is talking about. And on the other hand, what do you have from Joseph? I mean, Joseph's not this impeccable character in the story. He's this selfish little brat. He's this annoying little brother who comes and doesn't just report the dream, but rubs it in his brother's face. Do you know how big a deal I am? You're going to bow down. You're going to bow down before me someday. Like I'm going to rule over you. Look at my coat. You know Dad loves me best. A whole family of brothers living for their own kingdom. But when their hearts are changed, specifically when Joseph's desires are changed, when he's humbled, it's amazing to see how the story ends. Genesis 45, listen to this. 
Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. You hear the sense of our text? Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. And here's the hope. Because He draws near to you, He can overcome and restore any human relationship. Joseph, come near to me, please. And they came near. You read that and you can just kind of brush over it. And they came near. The brothers that sold him into slavery hundreds of miles away, that sold him off to be killed and to be out of their lives forever, that now see him sitting with all of Pharaoh's power and are frightened to the death. That this is our brother's love. He's going to kill us now. Come near to me. And they come near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Wait for judgment to drop, right? And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. I'm no longer living for my kingdom. I'm no longer driven by selfish ambition. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And the famous passage, Genesis 50.20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. means when repentance happens, when we humble ourselves and God pours out grace, He reconciles us to Himself. And that means there is no relationship that is hopeless. There is no marriage that can't be restored. There is no sibling rivalry that can't be healed. There's no discord or envy or friction within this room, within this body that can't become restored to the tightest of bonds. Because God promises and James promises that He gives grace to the humble. Would you bow your heads?